Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, so this, um, I believe, will be aired in 2021. So a very happy new year to um, everyone who's uh, tuned in and listening to Parallax. Um, this is the beginning of season three, and uh, we're, we're going to begin season three with a wrap up of uh, a year we want to put behind all of us. Uh, I'm sure 2020 has been has been a good hindsight um, for philosophical and and various other reasons. Um, but very happy to have with me to start season three, um, a, a colleague who I uh, respect tremendously and uh, sort of is back by popular demand because, you know, the episode that we had put together as a wrap up of 2019 was actually one of the most downloaded episodes for Parallax um, at the beginning of 2020. Um, so without much further ado, uh, I have Dr. Nijer. Uh, Sukh Nijer is an interventional cardiologist uh, at Imperial College in London. And, uh, you know, we're here to discuss um, everything that happened uh, in the field of cardiovascular medicine in 2020. Uh, and, you know, I think for, for our, our listeners, I, I want to break this to, you know, COVID-19 and non-COVID-19, because, you know, obviously the the highlight of all of our lives, you know, was COVID-19, whether or not we were in cardiovascular medicine or other subspecialties within within medicine. So, Suk, welcome and thank you for doing this for, for us. And I, I, I'm i glad you're well and safe. Thank you so much, Anka. Thank you for the kind invitation back. It's great to speak to you. Um, and, you know, we've clearly all been through quite a lot this year. Uh, so it's quite nice to just spend a bit of time reflecting on what's happened in cardiology, uh, as well as uh, what we've understood from COVID as well. So th- thank you for the invitation to come on your podcast. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, you, you did such an incredible job in um, summarizing, you know, all the important studies for 2019 that, you know, you were the chosen guest, you know, by popular demand and also by choice uh, to sort of do this for us in 2020. So let's, let's get going. Uh, so yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, we've, we've got a, we've got a lot to cover. So I'm going to start by asking you about uh, COVID-19. So that's novel coronavirus disease 2019. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I would say, you know, not only it's manifestations from a cardiovascular standpoint, you know, which, are, which are important, but also some of the decisions, you know, you and I ha- had to make, uh, you know, for our patients, you know, cause uh, underlying cardiovascular uh, illness was a significant comorbidity, which you know predisposed patients to a severe form of COVID nineteen illness. So, uh, you know, why don't we get started on you know the the story of the year, which is COVID? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think both you and I and all of our listeners will have all uh, been 
are working incredibly hard because of COVID-19. And I suspect the majority of your listeners will be uh, in those in the cardiology space, in the cardiovascular space. But And it, as always, with all cardiologists, we like to make everything about ourselves. So even though the uh, COVID-19 virus, um, uh, the illness is COVID-19, and the, even though the uh, virus is predominantly a respiratory issue and its pathology is predominantly lung, does cause quite a bit of cardiovascular uh, issues. And we've understood that over time. At the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really truly understand what was happening. And there were uh, lots of misinformation. And we've come over the period of uh, months to get a greater grip on all of this. And it really appears that the the virus uh, enters the cells. So it's spread by droplets. Uh, It may come in through your eyes or your mouth or your nose. And then it will enter through the mucosa and get into cells that express uh, ACE enzymes, which are predominantly in the lungs. So lungs uh, contain a lot of ACE, but also the endothelium of your blood vessels and your myocardium uh, also contain ACE. And once once the virus is taken up, it will then start replicating and generating new copies of itself, which is what uh, its raison d'etre is. But it will then cause an impact on any of the organs that it's entered. So breathlessness, uh, cough, and chest discomfort are very, very classical features. Patients will mount a fever, often a very high fever. Um, and uh, here in Europe and in the UK, we would say it's more than 38 degrees centigrade, which uh, uh, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I think I presume that's over 100 in Fahrenheit. And um, But they also have a lot of anosmia, so they have loss of smell. And that's because the nerve attacks the olfactory nerve. There can be GI upset. Uh, because it is up to um, and patients can have diarrhea and they can have headache. And we've even seen patients presenting with stroke, probably because of a combination of embolic phenomena and involving the cerebral arteries. So it, it, there's a multiple different effects that this seems to have. And the, in relation to the heart, there's three main components, right? So there's the fact that the virus will have a greater morbidity and mortality in those patients that have got cardiovascular disease. Second component is that we know that patients with COVID-19 have some form of cardiac damage that's detectable. Now, we can argue about the significance of that and what, how much attention we should pay to it. Um, and then the third component is that uh, certainly in the United Kingdom and in mainland Europe, there's been a huge reduction in normal healthcare services because of the COVID pandemic. And I know um, listening to the various different podcasts that come out of the US, I was interested to hear that even at the height of the COVID pandemic, many people were continuing to do elective cases and things. Certainly at the very first way that we had in the UK, all elective work had to be stopped and discontinued. So that will have a huge impact on our patients. Now, if we think of our typical cardiac patients, most of them will have some form of perhaps hypertension. They may well have uh, atherosclerosis. Uh, and what we see in those patients, if we look at the patients in, in case series that have been published, uh, first coming out of China and then uh, out of Italy, Spain, and then New York, is that a very consistent story. We see that patients with elevated blood pressure uh, are much higher risk of developing a more serious illness that requires hospitalization. So I think it's fair to recognize that COVID-19 is a serious virus, but actually the vast majority of the patients actually have very minimal symptoms. So many patients can be managed at home uh, and many patients will have a self-limiting illness that maybe lasts for 10 days uh, to 12 days and then they generally get better. And the cohort that we see as hospital-based physicians 
are those who are much more serious. So those that have started manifesting the second stage uh, host inflammatory response components where the body uh, is generating a huge amount of so-called cytokine storm with uh, elevations of uh, interleukin uh, six and other interleukins. And so we see a kind of sick cohort. And those with cardiovascular disease appear to have a higher chance of having that kind of sick stage. Then we also see that many of our patients develop a troponin elevation. Now, we've got to be careful because remember, there are multiple different types of troponin elevation, and it's not all classical acute coronary syndrome. This isn't necessarily plaque rupture with occlusion of the vessel causing either a STEMI or NSTEMI, but it may often be a troponin elevation due to myocardial inflammation, and we've seen myocarditis, and also a oxygen perfusion mismatch. So uh, the patients are hypoxic, they can't breathe, their lungs are full of this inflammatory material. And we've seen that many of the patients have very low saturations. Combine that with a background of coronary disease and plaque and uh, a level of shock, reduction in blood pressure. And then you, you will get a situation where the perfusion to the territories is not sufficient. And so it's unsurprising that you get a troponin elevation in these patients. Now, what's interesting is all the data out of China and, and, and the studies in Italy and Spain all corroborate that the size of the troponin elevation is related to the patient's uh, level of uh, risk of mortality, certainly in the near term. Okay, harder to say long term, but certainly in the near term. And we've got data that's come out of China that shows that those that have got troponin elevation are much less likely to survive at 30 days than those who've had no troponin elevation. And of course, just like all other myocardial injury, the size of the troponin elevation does strongly relate uh, to the uh, risk of mortality, and it predicts needing ventilation and inotropic support. All of these things are intuitive. The more damage to the heart, the greater the chance the patient's going to be unwell and get sick. And this is probably all driven through this uh, this point of attack that SARS has. This is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's got a spike protein that seems to bind the ACE2 enzyme, uh, which is expressed on the surface of these cells. These cells are in the myocardium, they're in, in, the, in the endothelium, and that seems to cause all of the issues. But what's interesting is very few of the studies have actually demonstrated the virus being in myocardial cells. It seems to be causing a lot of the damage through inflammation. And uh, there are certainly... Uh, evidence of uh, macrophages and other tissues within uh, heart specimens. But there also seems to be a lot of clotting. And I think many of us who've been on the floor uh, dealing with um, patients who've got this is that clotting is a major feature. And at the very beginning, there was data coming out of China suggesting there was a clotting abnormality component related to this. And I remember a lot of my uh, colleagues here in the UK were very disinterested in this. And they said, oh, well, we don't think this is true. We think this is a little bit of nonsense. And, and this has now come out fairly clearly that there is some form of clotting abnormality. Now, whether these patients all deserve to be on some form of uh, anticoagulant is less clear. And I would say, uh, you know, we, we really need the data for that. I spoke recently to Roxana Moran at one of our Imperial Congresses, and uh, she was fairly clear that she felt that, you know, this needed to be studied in a randomized control study. And in fact, at Imperial, one of our colleagues, Professor Kanagaratnam, is running a study in which we're randomizing patients to uh, uh, aspirin and clopidogrel and low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams BD, if they've got confirmed COVID and require hospitalization. We don't know what that's going to show, but it, you know, it may offset some of this elevated risk that seems to come uh, in, in the COVID um, 
And I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen the whole spectrum of cardiovascular uh, complications with COVID. Uh, we've seen traditional myocardial infarction. We've seen NSTEMI. We had a huge glut of NSTEMIs. I've seen STEMIs uh, with very, very bad uh, thrombotic occlusions with very high thrombus uh, burden, which uh, is hard to explain if it wasn't for the COVID. We've seen classical myocarditis with huge troponin rises, um, very high CRPs, very unwell patients. Um, and we've seen patients acutely decompensate with perhaps underlying DCM that hadn't been picked up. And then they suddenly develop uh, acute heart failure in a young patient. And these patients have had to go off and have ECMO. I've also seen uh, patients develop spontaneous ventricular thrombine. Um, and that's led to stroke. We've had at least one patient that's had a, a very young patient that had a stroke. And uh, as with everybody else, we've seen uh, PEs galore. I mean, pulmonary emboli seems to be a significant feature, particularly of those patients with hospitalized COVID-19, very unwell. Uh, D-dimer seems to be very high. And if you perform the lung imaging, you will see clot uh, in a lot of these patients. And that may explain some of the troponin elevation, may explain some of the chest pain that some of these patients have. So uh, certainly this is a, an important factor. And whether this is all driving a huge amount of STEMIs or, or not is really kind of uh, now been answered by the first two waves that we've had in the UK. We've we've not seen this big fear come to you know come to its conclusion that we really thought was going to happen that we were going to have wave after wave of STEMIs. What we've seen is patients have actually sat at home and not come in uh, despite having chest pain, and we've seen patients have complications of heart attacks that haven't been treated promptly. But we haven't seen this huge volume of uh, STEMIs driven by the virus itself. And so uh, I'm sure you saw a lot of the stories coming out of Italy with uh, these shark fin S elevations in young patients, which, are, which you know, was actually due to a form of localized my myopericarditis um, rather than um, classical STEMI. And we, we, didn't, we didn't get drowned in that. We thought we would, but that didn't happen. Now, long term... We don't know what's going to happen to these patients that have had COVID. Um, certainly, I've dealt with patients who've been completely fine, but I've got a lot of patients now on my books who've who seem to have this long COVID, um, which is not incredibly well codified, but we're basically referring to it as anyone that's got ongoing symptoms after uh, perhaps three months after their original COVID infection. And so, if you've got that kind of phenomena, um, sorry, I should I should say three weeks rather than three months. Um, then uh, I think then these patients tend to be very breathless, they tend to be fatigued, there's a lot of chest pain, joint pains. I think some of these patients have a lot of anxiety. They've you know, been through a significant illness, which in some cases has been the first time they've ever been that unwell. And um, I think it's difficult to know what tests to do for these patients without overdoing it. And I know there's been this controversial paper um, from uh, uh, Valentina Puntman's group uh, from Germany that has shown that a lot of these patients have late gadolinium on cardiac MR. Uh, we have great access to MRI in our institution. We do a lot of MRI and we have seen this, uh, but again, we don't know quite how to interpret it because of course, influenza and other viruses also cause uh, um, gadolinium changes within uh, the myocardium. And so I have to say, I side a little on the, the conservatives group, the, those um, who, who are basically saying, don't do the imaging. Uh, unless absolutely necessary. So I think if you've got a patient that's suffering with perhaps a high burden of ventricular ectopy or, or, or 
you know, profound ongoing breathlessness and you're very worried, then I think that's worth doing. But for asymptomatic patients, I, I wouldn't advocate putting all these patients into an MRI scanner. Yeah, that's, um, you actually uh, ended in a, in a really, um, you know, good note because, you know, that was going to be my question to you because I've seen a lot of these, uh, uh, these follow-ups in, in my in my clinical practice, you know, in the, in, in the clinics, um, a lot of these, uh, patients who, you know, were diagnosed with COVID-19, um, were hospitalized maybe for a day or two, or, you know, sent home from the emergency department in isolation for 14 days, um, you know, had mild upper respiratory symptoms. So they self-isolated themselves and they quarantined. And then they were told to follow up with cardiology because, you know, they were either tachycardic or, you know, they, they were, they were having a few extra beats or, you know, maybe in the emergency department, someone drew a troponin and the troponin was positive, but they were not, you know, administered a stress test because they were thought that they were low risk and COVID, you know, the, the troponinemia was attributable to COVID-19 illness. How do you, uh, I mean, do you, do we have to risk stratify these patients outside of what we usually do, you know, if we get sort of such a patient? Yeah, I think we don't know at the moment. I think that the, I th- suspect for the vast majority of these patients, that they actually had a troponin elevation, uh, like a a type two um, myocardial infarction, so uh, related to a myocardial stress and injury as opposed to plaque rupture. And if you've got a patient in front of you who's had this situation and they've got hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, they've been a smoker and they've got a strong family history, then uh, you know you would do that anything that any cardiologist would do, which is risk stratification. But if you've got a younger patient who's physically very fit, never had any further problems, I don't think we need to start uh, performing um, uh, stress testing in all of these patients unless there was uh, key symptoms that raise concern. So in a well patient, I think we should be cautious because we create a lot of anxiety. And I think a lot of the patients that come and seek our advice regarding this is partly because uh, social media uh, and because of, I mean, certainly here in Europe, uh, we have something called WhatsApp, which I'm sure you're familiar with. WhatsApp is a messaging platform, but you'll be amazed on how uh, stories and complete fabrications go around on that. I, I, I don't use Facebook. <laughs> so I imagine Facebook is very similar, uh, given that they're owned by the same, they're, they're basically the same company, aren't they? But they, the misinformation that spreads and the anxiety that gets driven by that is absolutely huge, even amongst medical professionals. And so I, I, I suspect we kind of make people worry unnecessarily. Now, there are some of my colleagues who are very worried that these patients are going to have long-term heart failure. And I think if you've got a patient that uh, has symptoms and they've got uh, gadolinium and they've got a reduction in uh, function, then you should treat these patients appropriately. You know, these patients should uh, get ACE inhibitors or uh, angiotensin II receptor uh, blockade and be treated with the best in class medication. But uh, I think we should also recognize that we don't really know uh, what's going to happen. And I suspect the majority of these patients have um, a syndrome of, uh, of symptoms that are very similar to other post-viral syndromes. So if patients with influenza uh, or even the, the common cold can get a post-viral uh, fatigue syndrome. So I, I suspect that there is an overlap of that um, with our patients. Uh, one thing I, I'd be interested if you're seeing this phenomenon is we're seeing a lot of pericardial effusions. Uh, and this does worry me a little bit because uh, it's hard to pick up unless you've done an echo. And we've had a couple of patients that have uh, actually needed drains because they were uh, there was an impact and they had echocardiographic uh, evidence of um, some uh, form of uh, compression. 
So I, I, this is something that does concern me that you know there could be a lot of patients out there who've had pericardial inflammation and then developed uh, a fusion that may well be important. And of course, you know, if, particularly if they're young and they're having simple fainting symptoms or something along those lines, the patients, you know, other physicians may ignore those because they they, they think, okay, well, young person who's having a faint, perhaps less important. Uh, is that something you've seen at all? You know, the, it's interesting that you mentioned it because, you know, with us, you know, particularly where, um, you know, I work, um, you know, in, in the cath lab, you know, for us, fusions come in, you know, they, they, they come in, in, in waves. So, you know, we would have, you know, like there would be a week with six to seven taps and then, you know, a few weeks would go by and then we would have another week with six to seven taps. And I'm, I'm wondering, and, and, you know, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, particularly in 2020, we've had more, more of those kinds of waves than we've had, you know, for example, in 2019. Um, although, you know, this is all anecdote and really have to go back and see, you know, whether there was, uh, you know, whether, whether there was, um, something of this sort, which was, which was pandemic driven, you know, something actually really interesting project for us to. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I should hasten to add, you're absolutely right. Mo- most of this is based on anecdote, right? So, uh, and, you know, I could put together the collection of patients that I've seen and publish it and then say, I've got an evidence base, but really, again, uh, these kind of patient series things are still anecdotes. So hard to draw much conclusion from it other than to say, our particular set of hospitals that work in our particular way of working has seen this phenomenon. Um, and I'm not sure how much to conclude for it for, for in other services because healthcare services around the world are, are designed very differently. Um, and so it, it is difficult to know what, what is translatable in that regard. Yeah. But you know, it's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an observation, right? It's, it's a clinical observation and, um, you know, similar to what we reported, you know, like an increase in the incidence of chest cardiomyopathy was, was something which, you know, we, we saw in our cat labs and, you know, we thought, you know, it was a, a fair question to study and study in a systematic fashion. I, I think maybe we could, you know, we could undertake, you know, u- using, using the Cleveland Clinic Health System data from the cat labs that we have, you know, look at what percentage of bicardial effusions needed to be drained during the pandemic compared with the pre-pandemic months and see if there is any association. So yeah, probably hit you up on yeah, that. So if uh, yeah, absolutely. So here we go. We got uh, now we'll have pressure to actually do the project now yeah. because we put it on the podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll we'll be held accountable. We'll be held accountable. Yeah. So you know, so just to, just to end the segment for COVID nineteen, what are sort of the take home messages for the cardiologist who's out there in the trenches taking care of patients? You know, and what what are the important take home messages for cardiologists out of the COVID nineteen pandemic, according to you as a practicing cardiologist yourself? Okay, so um, I think tips for cardiologists who are on the floor, who are actually dealing with patients with COVID-19, I think there are a couple of things that I would say. One is to make sure that uh, you are protected. And uh, I think there's real importance to make sure you're wearing the proper PPEs, that you're uh, using it appropriately um, and not uh, reusing equipment, uh, make it available, uh, get it. We, we brought in a lot for our staff uh, as well as for ourselves. Uh, and get the vaccine if it's available to you. It's really great to see everyone on social media posting their vaccine photos. It's, it's valuable to take it because you don't want to be a vector for the virus itself. Uh, you, you're, our patients are vulnerable. The cardiac patients are vulnerable. And if you're going between patient to patient, it's worth making sure that you are not the vector of taking the virus to our vulnerable patients. And then I think it's worth recognizing 
that our patients are more vulnerable than perhaps others. And so go through your uh, lists of patients, go through your clinics, identify those that are most at risk and make sure that those patients are appropriately treated, make sure everything's optimized. And then also reduce the amount of testing that you do in these patients. If it's not necessary for them to come in for a series of tests, uh, then uh, defer them. And it's not that they um, uh, can never have these tests. They can be performed later after the pandemic. And I think there's great evidence from many of our studies, particularly in stable patients, like the ischemia study that shows that in the near term, we can manage many of these patients conservatively for a period of time. And so uh, that's what we've done here in our, in our hospital network. A lot of elective work was deferred and cancelled. And we've uh, kept up to date with many of these patients. Uh, there's been um, very few patients having any uh, major events whilst they're waiting. And so I think that it is safe to be able to wait. In those patients who have to have procedures, then obviously make sure you follow the appropriate guidance. And I think, you know, we've got used to doing all of our procedures wearing layers and layers of PPE. Uh, and hopefully we can, as we get vaccinated, uh, we'll be able to, um, uh, to lessen that. But certainly in the near term, we're doing everything with appropriate uh, protection. All right. You know, ex excellent tips for, uh, you know, all the practicing cardiologists out there, you know, who are still going to be taking care of COVID-19 afflicted patients, you know, as we hopefully uh, start to see the beginning of the end of this pandemic, I would hope. Um, but moving on. So, so th thank you. So that was that was terrific, uh, you know, sort of uh, summary for uh, for us to uh, keep in our minds as we uh, practice cardiology. Now, moving to non-COVID-19, uh, you know, studies from 2020, um, let's, I, I would, I would like to start off with strength, you know, because I think that was one of the, one of the major trials, uh, you know, out of the Cleveland Clinic presented at uh, American Heart Association annual scientific sessions. Um, it drew a lot of attention because it was compared with findings from Reduce It. You know, Reduce It, as we know, was uh, the purified, purified derivative of, uh, Icosapentanoic acid, so icosapentethyl, uh, which you know, at a dose of two grams um, BID, so that that roughly translates into two capsules you take twice a day. Uh, that that was what I was doing in my in my clinical practice. Um, reduced uh, events in patients who were you know statin treated patients, so patients with normal LDL. But what strength showed was. Uh, was was different, right? Strength, and I, I, you'll probably discuss about this and go, get, get into the nuances. But yeah, uh, the point of controversy was actually not only the study arm, but also the the placebo arm. Uh, but I, I'm going to let you discuss both those trials. Yeah, gosh, I mean, what it did create a lot of controversy, and it has led to a lot of discussion. So, so let's let's talk about it. So, um, I'm going to put put my hand up straight away and say that. Uh, um, Vascaper is not available in the United Kingdom, and so I have no clinical experience of using this drug. Although we've actively been telling our patients that you know we're hopeful that this this uh, drug will become available, and people are very interested in it. and the, And the reason they're interested comes from the fact that it sounds natural. It sounds like something uh, that patients are very happy to take. I'm always amazed. In fact, I saw just before recording this podcast, I just saw a patient whose list of supplements that she was taking. Uh, was I think fourteen different supplements, and uh, and she was completely uh, abhorrent at the idea of having to take uh, a normal in inverted commas medication. She was very happy to take all these other things uh, because she had read them in various magazines and things that they were helpful. And so I think the the um, 
desire for some a drug like uh, Vascapa to 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 be effective sounds um, very attractive. We here is a, a a medicine that is essentially an, a natural purified oil that if only we could get enough of it in our diet, then we would all you know live forever. And I think that's what what makes it so attractive. And so when when Reduce It came out, there was huge excitement uh, driven by by the quite quite massive risk reduction uh, by adding in this simple purified medication but then there is a, a bit of controversy about that in itself right so the the um the randomized control study used a mineral oil as the control and the feeling is that the mineral oil is a safe alternative and therefore counts as a uh, a, a reasonable control to use. But there is some evidence to suggest that the minerals themselves perhaps are harmful and uh, may well be causing an abnormality in patients' LDL levels. And if you look at the study in detail, you'll see that LDL levels were actually rising in the group of patients who are on the mineral oil placebo. And it might be that I mean, it's difficult to know why this may be happening. It might be because patients think they're getting the um, uh, the active drug. And so they think, okay, I'm on my statin, I'm on my active drug, uh, therefore I'm going to alter my dietary habits now and I can eat more uh, burgers and chips. And that's what's causing their LDL. But it also may be driven by the fact that the mineral oil seems to have some interaction with your uh, statin that you're taking and may also be pushing up your LDL levels. And therefore, uh, it, may, it may not have been a truly inert placebo. But if you... What's interesting is that the FDA looked at this and they, they did do a deep dive on this and they felt that this was not uh, a valid concern. And although I know that some, uh, uh, some you know, key uh, guys at Cleveland have really pushed on this, uh, they, they haven't, uh, this hasn't been the overall feeling that this is a, uh, a fluke finding in the Reduce It study. Because there is another study, um, I think it's called, the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this actually, I think it's the Jealous Oh, I don't know. To pronounce jealous as well, it's written in a in a kind of uh, unusual way. And I, I think they, they were going for something quite funny. I, I love um, cardiology study acronyms, so they went for jealous, and they um, show a similar reduction in uh, lipid uh, levels when you take uh, um, basically this purified um, um, uh, fish oil. But what's interesting is in the strength study, which uh, is an interesting study because it's it's pushed by, um, I believe, AstraZeneca. They're producing this uh, as a mass-produced oil, less refined than uh, Vascapa, um, and it's combined with some other oils. So you've got the EPA, but you've also got DHA in there as well. And the hope was that it would uh, be an easier-to-produce medication that would then have a similar effect. And what they found in this very large study, about 13,000 patients, uh, with each arm around six and a half thousand patients and good representation of cardiovascular risk. You know, they've got more women than many studies do around the third were women. They had a 70% patients with diabetes and they, they took patients with proven atherosclerosis as, as well as those with risk factors. But they ended up having to stop the study early because uh, for futility because they weren't seeing any difference at all. And it, it's interesting that in strength, they also not seeing a uh, reduction in LDL levels as they saw in, um, in, in the reduce it study. So it implies that something is going wrong here. And there's lots of people have thought about this. And, and one of the reasons they thought is perhaps the, the DHA 
which is part of the, the mix that they put in with this particular drug, is uh, minimizing the effectiveness of the EPA. So we don't know for sure, uh, but it, and it's a theory, and it would be interesting to see if this bears out. We know that DHAs do have some negative effects, uh, and therefore it could be that the negative effect of the DHA is counteracting the EPA. Um, and what's interesting is we're not seeing the big reduction in um, uh, LDL levels. Now, the, the patients who, who went into this study all had high triglycerides, they all had low HDL levels, and they all had uh, high LDL levels. So these were high-risk patients. And what I like about the STRENGTH study is not just the fact that, okay, it's a negative study, so it creates some controversy and people kind of say, so what, do we need to stop using these drugs? But what I like about it is that it truly shows what the event rate of patients with cardiovascular disease is if monitored over a period of time. Now, bear in mind, these are motivated patients because they've entered themselves into a trial. If you look at 12, 24, and 48-month data, what we're seeing is that you essentially got an event rate of around 20%. And uh, so if you're seeing a patient who's on good medical therapy, optimal medical therapy, then the event rate that they're going to be um, at risk of in stable patients is around 5% at 12 months, 7.5% at 24 months, and around 10% at 36 months. And so that's incredibly useful information to be able to tell our patients when they, when they come to us with uh, elevated lipids and um, uh, medication that could still uh, need a bit of improvement, is that even with the best things uh, on, on board, they've still got an elevated risk. So they need to be careful. They need to watch their diet. They need to ensure they're taking the appropriate exercise. And so I think even though the study is negative, there is some positive to be drawn out of it. And I, I like looking at studies like that because it does inform about the, uh, the overall risk for our patients. Now, I'd be interested now, you guys use a lot of uh, Vascapa. So what's your experience been with it? And, and are you finding that patients enjoy taking it, that they've uh, get on well with the, this fish oil? Yeah, so you know, I've um, I've I've actually been been an early adopter, um, you know, of of uh, purified fish oil derivative, you know, thanks to reduce it, and um, I've I've have seen you know very very promising results in in my clinical practice. It's it's amazing, you know, what was a revelation to me. So, can, and maybe it should not have been a revelation to begin with, but um, I I started. You know, particularly after the results of the reduce it were announced, I really started keying into lipid panels and and specifically looking for triglyceride levels. And I, to my surprise, you know, over fifty percent of my practice, you know, was was reduce it study population. <laughs> so you know, even though uh, you know there was you know incredible LDL reduction with you know high intensity statin therapy, which is what we prescribe to our patients after an acute coronary event, you know, when I was seeing these patients. And follow up in clinic, you know, six months down the road with more than 50% LDL reduction and, you know, with LDL values less than 70, um, you know, their triglycerides were still elevated, like in, into the 170s, 180s, 200 ranges. And these were not diabetic patients. These were just, uh, you know, perfect reduced patients, quite frankly. And, um, you know, when I started, um, when I, when I bring, when I brought up Vesipa and, um, and and the dose and you know I, I did say look it's it's a capsule it's a gram capsule so it's the the recommended dose is two grams BID so you got to take two capsules mm. uh, in the morning and then two capsules in the evening you know they seemed fine with it just like you said just because it was it, it was some for, some form of a purified nutrient um, yes. and um, yeah. 
there's something very attractive about that. People like the idea that it's just a, you know, they think of it as a health food supplement. They don't think of it as a medicine. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's an odd, it's an odd phenomenon. Um, uh, but it, uh, it's quite, I understand it's quite a big, it's a, quite a big capsule as well. Right. So, uh, it is. yeah, it's, it's, it's a sizable capsule and, and, you know, the, the compliance was, you know, was, was not a challenge at all. I mean, it, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's funny, right? Because the Torvastatin 80 milligrams is quite a large pill. And I get that complaint every single patient I prescribe it to. They come back and say, oh, this pill is massive. I can't swallow this pill. And yet they'll be happily swallowing these massive fish oil capsules um, with no difficulty at all. So there is a, a huge um, psychological barrier about these. But I think you're absolutely right. This just shows how blinded we become as cardiologists and, and, you know, and other physicians. We focus on what we know and we focus on what we can treat. Uh, and the focus has been on LDLC. And uh, we measure LDL, we uh, target, we know what to do with it. Triglycerides, we just don't quite know what to do with. And, and the drugs haven't been so good. The fibrates aren't great. Um, and uh, you know, they were downgraded in their recommendations as well. And uh, patients don't always tolerate them. And so we didn't really have a great medication uh, to be able to give patients with this. Now, I think if we do use medications like Vescaper, then I'm sure we will um, uh, get these reduction. And I would hope that it reduces the event rates. Uh, what I see a lot in my practice uh, is a lot of type 2 diabetes. And in West London, uh, where Imperial is based, we just have an absolute uh, sea of uh, patients with type 2 diabetes. And um, so we're already pushing a lot of these patients onto medications like the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, as, and I can imagine um, once uh, these uh, EPA type drugs come available in the UK, we'll, we'll also be pushing these particular medications. Until then, I've actually been saying to them, just go out and buy a fish oil. But then it turns out that probably isn't the right advice because as, as this study strength has shown that not all fish oils are alike. And this particular one, although it's pharmaceutical grade, the combination of DHA seems to be harmful or it seems to have a negative impact. It certainly causes your LDL levels to rise. So that, that is uh, not a great thing. Yeah, you know, like, um, you know, I mean, my conclusion was that not all fish oil is, uh, fish oils are equal, right? Uh, and, you know, I think there's, a, there's something to be said about, uh, about the endpoints of reduce it, you know, even though, the, the naysayers would say that mineral oil, you know, spuriously raised LDL and that it should not be treated as, as a true placebo. Uh, but, you know, as you pointed out rightly, you know, the jealous is another study that actually showed what reduce it showed. So there's, there's something about purified fish oil that, that is driving the endpoints, you know, in my opinion. And, you know, clinically, I, I did see that in patients, like, you know, patients, there was a significant drop in triglyceride levels as well. So... Um, so, you know, it's sort of become before I would add a Zetamibe, I would say, you know, statin, high intensity. Okay. You've got a good LDL reduction. If your triglycerides are high, I'm going to start you on Vesipa, uh, and, you know, sort of you should be on, on that BID. Well, we, we look forward to getting it, uh, because I think, um, certainly the, the, the UK mentality would be that the, the patients would love taking it. But, um, I just hope. Uh, in terms of costs and things, I, I think this is uh, always a limiting factor. We would have to get through nice approval in the United Kingdom, and so that always delays things. Yeah, no, I'm. Yeah, look forward to your, um, you know, your experience with it. You know, my experience has certainly has been very positive. Um, you know, with patients. So moving along, um, 
some big action, you know, in in electrophysiology with our EP colleagues and and particularly with regard to how you manage, uh, you know, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Uh, do you want to talk about those trials? Look? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I I am an interventional cardiologist, but I, a lot of my uh, outpatient clinical work is general cardiology. So I see a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation. And I think um, many of us will recognize that there are those patients who are very symptomatic from AF and others that have no symptoms at all. And uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, AF ablation is generally uh, a second line therapy after medication. And uh, the UK's NICE essentially says that you can have an AF ablation, but only uh, after other medical therapy has has failed. And AF ablation as is, uh, is very commonly produced procedure, but the difficulty is that there are lots of different competing technologies. There are lots of different ways that AF ablation can be performed. I'll hold my hands up and say, I don't perform AF ablation, but you know, I, 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 I've, uh, I'm not sure I can tolerate being, uh, doing a single procedure for four hours um, like, like my EP colleagues do. But uh, there is um, different procedures and they, they do have different levels of success. And I think it's fair to say that many patients, particularly with uh, chronic or permanent AF, may need more than one procedure in order to, um, uh, to return them to sinus rhythm on a long-term basis. And also there was, um, towards the kind of beginning part of my career, and this, this came out when I, I think I was uh, what you guys would call an intern, uh, was the AFFIRM study, um, which basically showed uh, that actually when you're looking at rate versus rhythm control, there didn't seem to be much difference. And uh, this whole concept of aggressively pursuing rhythm control meant it didn't really alter the patient's trajectory. And so this uh, perhaps downgraded the use of ablation and um, uh, other adjunctive therapies to re return people to sans rhythm. And yet we've got patients who are very symptomatic. And so what's really nice is that the, the STOP AF and the early AF studies, two very similar studies, um, and I believe are using uh, similar catheters. And what they have basically shown is that actually early ablation appears to be better uh, for patients in terms of maintaining uh, their rhythm and keeping them in sinus rhythm and therefore reducing symptoms. And that cryo balloons and cryoablation is both safe and effective and will um, basically simplify the procedure. And those who perform uh, ablation will know that cryo um, ablation therapies are much quicker. Uh, in fact, there's a colleague of mine uh, who works on the other side of London, uh, Richard Schilling, who's really pioneered cryo here in the United Kingdom. And he actually moved to performing cryo in uh, small uh, outside hospitals. So not tertiary centers, not big academic centers, but in small uh, uh, district general hospitals, as we call them here in the UK, and is also doing it in small outpatient facilities, so day case facilities. So that's a, quite a significant innovation. And he has really pushed this approach to AF ablation. And many people would have said, okay, well, that's a little bit aggressive. It's a little bit unnecessary. But these studies now, STOP AF and early AF, are kind of really supporting that view that in selected patients, a little bit younger, perhaps, we're not talking about 80 year olds, we're talking about uh, much younger patients who are symptomatic from their atrial fibrillation, uh, then don't um, uh, uh, sit on them with medications or give them toxic um, 
medications for rhythm control, rather refer them early for AF ablation and to be able to achieve better rhythm control in a relatively more straightforward procedure, which is quicker and has less complications. So I think this is a positive positive development in the EP field. And it's great to see uh, EP have actually, uh, after a long time of basically sitting it out, I think they learned from interventional cardiologists. Interventional cardiologists had kept doing studies that basically showed that coronary intervention doesn't work in instable disease um, and were putting themselves out of a job. And so the electrophysiologists kind of sat on the edges, didn't perform the studies until they'd really refined their techniques, got better technologies, and now have produced a series of studies, including Castle AF um, from a couple of years ago, that showed that if you select your AF ablations, then you can actually do real benefit for your patients. So I think this is really positive. So in, in terms of uh, clinical practice and, you know, sort of uh, talking to patients, um, has has it changed for you, Suk? Yeah, well, we've, I mean, we, we, absolutely. So we've had, um, we work uh, in our practice, we're very uh, close linked with our um, EP service. We have a lot of uh, multidisciplinary team meetings. We discuss our cases. And as we become more and more uh, subspecialized, it's always sensible to discuss um, patients in, in this kind of setting. And what we found is that we do now refer more early and patients who perhaps we wouldn't have referred before because we thought that, okay, well, y- yes, they're symptomatic, but we're going to just manage them on beta blockade and digoxin and maybe some amiodarone. Uh, then actually we've had successful results by referring them for ablation. Now, again, this is, this is anecdotal evidence, uh, but the studies certainly seem to support it. So, and we've been pushing in this, in this direction and, and patients seem to prefer it. The difficulty that we have, of course, is that ablation procedures can be quite long. Uh, and so the waiting times, certainly here in the UK, can be longer than we would like. Uh, and there's a there's a push to kind of solve that. Yeah. So moving along, Suk, um, talk about um, Rhapsody. Uh, interesting, interesting name, interesting acronym. Um, you know, I, I am always in awe of how cardiologists come up with these amazing acronyms. Oh, these acronyms are wonderful. I, I I love them. I love the the names that they come up with. So Rhapsody is a, a an interesting study, and I think it's essentially for a relatively small niche of patients, but are patients that are particularly troublesome and are difficult to manage. So it's it's um, a, a study that looks at uh, anti um, interleukin um, medications. They're inhibitors that block various interleukins. And it's there to treat patients who've got recurrent pericarditis. So we've all seen and had patients that have had recurrent pericarditis with multiple admissions, keep needing to have strong uh, non-steroidal medication, um, and uh, sometimes move on to using steroids. And it's real troublesome to treat these patients. And if you don't treat them, then there is a risk that the pericardium become thickened and they can develop a a constriction type picture. And we've got a few patients that have ended up needing to have uh, pericardectomies. And and as you know, that's an incredibly complex and difficult procedure uh, and um, can have associated high complication rate. So what what these guys in Rhapsody did was to look at this new immunological drug, a biologic, as they will refer to it, uh, Rylanosept, if I can pronounce that correctly. And what this drug did was had a massive reduction in the recurrence rates of um, pericarditis. There are a couple of interesting things about this study. So it's a relatively small study. I think it was about 80 patients uh, in, um, uh, initially, and then they completed only 61 patients. So you've got to take a huge amount of caution in interpreting these results, because although their P numbers 
are absolutely uh, huge. The, the, you know, the, the number of zeros is really long, but the total number of patients they recruited are small. And these patients all had to have a run-in period. And they had a run-in period to look to see if they could tolerate these medications. And any study that has a long run-in period always concerns me because in real life doesn't include run-in periods. You've either got to, got to give the patient the drug or not. And giving them drug for a period is to see whether they're going to have a side effect and therefore can go into a study uh, means that you're already starting to make your study a little bit more niche. Uh, and then their um, definitions of recurrence of pericarditis were relatively soft, I would say. And what they found is, this, remember this is an unblinded study, uh, is that the patients who were on the drug had trivial recurrence. So in the time zone that they, they, they looked, they had a recurrence of like 6% or 7%, so a very low percentage. And in those that were not on the drug had a very high um, rate of recurrence, so 74%. And so naturally, that drives a lot of excitement. But I have to say that the number of patients that will get this drug will almost certainly be very small. And as with all of these uh, immunological drugs or biological drugs, which suppress the immune system, they come with um, some costs. And that cost appears to be respiratory infections. And the likelihood of getting a lung infection or a pneumonia goes up quite a bit on these medications. So blocking your interleukin system will undoubtedly mean that your immune system is somewhat suppressed, just like there, there are patients with um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthropathy who are etanocept, they are much more likely to get chest infections. So uh, will patients on this drug. So I can imagine it's going to be used in a select cohort of patients, but it's not going to be something that will be used in every pericarditis. I think the majority of patients do tolerate colchicine pretty well. Um, and, you know, colchicine uh, is currently enjoying its uh, moment in the sun uh, with a number of different studies that have shown the benefit of colchicine in other settings. And so I suspect we'll probably continue to use colchicine up front, first line, uh, certainly for the near term. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, I certainly do not have a lot of recurrent pericarditis in my practice. And, you know, if I do encounter a patient, you know, I work for, um, you know, one of the largest regional hospitals for the Cleveland Clinic, but it's easy for me to send the patient to, you know, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Klein, who was the first author on the study at Cleveland Clinic main campus and, you know, have him, have him inject them with Rylonicept. Um, but uh, you know, great, great summary, uh, important topic. Uh, you know, there are certainly patients, um, who have this condition. It's, it's like you said, it's a very challenging condition, uh, to treat, uh, and, you know, patients, uh, suffer a lot and go through a lot of, uh, hospitalizations and just, uh, you know, un uneasy, uncomfortable, uh, recurring symptoms. And, you know, if you have uh, a monoclonal antibody that can, that can target the, the specific immunological ag agent that's responsible yeah, for, for sure. the inflammation. I mean, if I was suffering with pericarditis, recurrent pericarditis, and I was suffering in this way, and my physician said, look, we're going to put you on long-term prednisolone um, and have to take a steroid, then I would be pretty unhappy with that because the long-term complications of taking those drugs is pretty high. But um, so something like it, it, this kind of biological medication would therefore uh, seem a lot more attractive. But as you say, it's unlikely to be used by majority of our cardiology colleagues. It's going to be regional centers, subspecialty, you know, subspecialty centers who are dealing with these kind of patients because you've got to have the mechanism of follow-up, blood testing, uh, and uh, monitoring. And that's not going to be something that 
uh, I think your, your average uh, office cardiologist is going to be doing. Okay. So what else do you have up your sleeve there, Suk? What else do you want to talk about well, to wrap you up know, 2020? I think the key um, change, the C change, is going to be these SGLT2 inhibitors. And I mentioned this uh, at the earlier part of my conversation with you. And I think these drugs are incredibly exciting. I think um, they, so you, you know that story about um, an apple a day keeps a doctor away. You, you, will, you will have heard of that expression. And what I was amazed to, to read is that the SGLT2 uh, class of drugs actually is derived from a chemical uh, that comes from apple skin. And it just makes you wonder whether this whole thing about uh, keeping doctors away may well have been keeping heart failure doctors away and keeping hospital internists away. Uh, but by having enough apples, you seem to reduce your heart failure admissions in so many of these drugs. And we've got data from last year. Obviously, Dapper HF was absolutely humongous blockbuster release at ESC. Uh, and that led to uh, real gasps in the room when those results came out that showed that patients without diabetes uh, with heart failure had a big reduction in heart failure-related events, including a reduction in mortality. And then this year, um, there's impagliflozin, um, which comes uh, as a, a very similar design study as DAPRHF. Some subtle differences in terms of perhaps their heart failure patients were a little bit worse uh, in terms of their uh, level of severity. Um, and what they show in, in around 7,000 patients or so is very similar outcomes. So you get a big reduction in heart failure-related events. Now, what's interesting about uh, Emperor Reduce is they didn't hit a mortality reduction in this particular study, which is interesting because Impagliflozin, obviously, in their type 2 diabetes studies, did show a mortality reduction in cardiovascular mortality, uh, but uh, Dipagliflozin in uh, declared Timmy uh, I remember which Timmy it was now, 52 perhaps, uh, didn't show that mortality. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Uh, but I would essentially say that this basically confirms to us that these medications uh, have a number of benefits and we should seriously be considering them for our patients. And then there's this new medication that I'm less familiar with. Um, we certainly haven't prescribed it, but we prescribe a lot of dipigliflozin and impegliflozin is uh, sotoglyphosin, which uh, was studied in the soloist um, study and um, what this has shown is that uh, there's another class, another medication in the same class that can reduce heart failure events, and this has some other, you know, not quite sure what the long-term benefits of this will be. If there is a reduction of um, the SGLT1 inhibitor in the gut, and so therefore you reduce the amount of sugar that you absorb. Uh, that will just like the SGLT2s cause increased. Um, uh, urination and uh, increased sweet, uh, sweet urine and therefore infections, there is uh, sotoglyphosin seems to cause increased diarrhea. So there is a, perhaps a question over tolerability for patients. Uh, and there is some, some sad things. I think one of the, the companies that were enveloped, developed uh, this medication um, uh, had some of their funding withdrawn. Uh, and so uh, the studies ended up being stopped early, which is a shame because it looks like this, these set of medications probably are as effective as the other SGLT2s. But the, the take home that I've had from these studies is that in our patients uh, with heart failure, they're going to end up on a number of medications. They're going to uh, end up probably on Entresto. They're going to end up probably on a mineralocorticoid. And there's a new uh, medication, uh, Phenanarone, that seems to be highly effective, which may end up supplanting spironolactone or a plerinone. Uh, 
And then there's they're going to end up on SGLT2s. So in last two years, essentially, the treatment of heart failure uh, has essentially been revolutionized. And I, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing um, further studies on this, because I think if you can get patients on all of these class of medications, we will finally be able to turn heart failure from something that uh, we all recognize has got outcomes that are worse than many cancers to something that uh, may well be a much more uh, better uh, condition to, to manage. And the other exciting uh, thing that follows on from this is that the SGLT2s are being aggressively assessed in those patients with diastolic, so-called diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And I'm really hopeful, just like uh, the FDA has recently altered its um, licensing for uh, Entresto, uh, that these drugs will show benefit because then finally we'll have some evidence-based therapy for these really quite difficult to manage patients. Um, I don't know if you have many patients with preserved um, uh, ejection fraction and heart failure in your books, but we have a lot uh, and they're very, very difficult to manage. And, uh, you know, we're usually stuck with just using um, diuretics and there's only so much Lasix and uh, spironolactone that you can give these patients. But, you know, it'd be nice to be able to have therapies that have other big changes. And I'm hopeful that these studies, that when they come out, I think Emperor Preserved is coming out next year, 2021, um, or this year, as when this podcast is broadcast, um, is uh, will 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 show some benefits, and then finally we'll be able to make a big difference for these patients. Yes, you know, HFPF is 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 a vexing uh, condition, and you know, I, I run a valve clinic with uh, with my colleague, um, you know, who's a structural heart interventionalist, and you know, we see valve patients and aortic stenosis patients, and there is. Uh, a good overlap of patients who also end up having a lot of diastolic dysfunction, you know, because of, you know, hypertrophy and, and severe aortic stenosis. So um, I agree. And, and, you know, like, like you said, there is no, there, there is no treatment for um, a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, certainly not none that has shown. Yes. To have I, any I thought it was benefit. very interesting about the, the FDA's recent uh, change in, um, in Tresto, because of course, Paragon HF ostensibly is a negative study. It didn't show benefit um, uh, in in patients with preserved ejection fraction, uh, although it came very close. And the the p value from in from memory was I think it was 0. 0.06, so literally just on the border. Uh, and you know a few statistical uh, hoops that you could jump through. I'm sure you could suddenly make the study positive. It does raise questions though. It does, you know, if we're going to go back and start, uh, reassessing and, uh, evaluating studies based on subgroup analysis, then what's to stop us from doing that for all of our various drugs? Um, and you know, that it potentially sets a precedent that, uh, the FDA may regret going down the path of, but that's certainly, um, I, I, I found it interesting that they went down there. Uh, it's interesting. I, I suspect we won't get that here in the UK. I suspect NICE is, um, so for the listeners who aren't aware, in the UK, we have a regulatory body um, or a recommendation body called NICE, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, which assesses medications and treatments, including device therapy, really aggressively. And it's always been this paragon uh, of, of um impartiality and uh, lack of bias. More recently, I have to say that some of their decisions have been difficult to uh, to understand. Uh, and one of the 
complex things about it is that they, if, for example, if you're looking at something in the cardiovascular space, then the, the, the uh, cardiologists and the cardiac physicians will be involved in the decision making, but they won't necessarily be on the writing committee. And so sometimes the decisions seem a little bit unusual. Uh, and so that's, uh, it leads to some unusual decisions from NICE. Uh, but I suspect they will probably not give Entresto usage in, um, in those patients where, uh, with, with preserved ejection fraction. But you know, we're hoping because we've got a lot of patients with it. Yeah, well, Suk, um, always great to have you on board. And thank you for the comprehensive summary uh, for 2020. You know, great discussion, um, you know, detailed and, you know, practical tips and, and tools that, you know, our colleagues can use while taking care of patients in the trenches. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll uh, obviously see you around on social media. And hopefully, uh, once the meetings resume, which I'm hoping for because I haven't seen yes, colleagues I mean, in over a year now. This has been something that we've really missed uh, is actually just catching up with people. And uh, you realize now uh, uh, how uh, used to we'd become just catching up. You know, I remember we chatted uh, in the um, faculty lounge of one of the conferences and social media is great in the fact that it breaks down so many barriers and you can you know, speak to people that you've perhaps uh, never spoken to in person. And what's really nice about it, about going to a meeting, is you catch up with all your friends from around the world. But we, none of us have had that this year. So we're, I think there's going to be some, uh, perhaps by summer 21, we'll have some uh, people finally getting to catch up. Yeah, no, I mean, ACC is on the cards. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that meeting yeah. is not cancelled. Yes. Fingers um, crossed. So, I'll see you in Atlanta. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, that'll be, that'll be terrific. It'll be terrific to, to see everyone and meet with everyone. Um, great. Well, um, Suk, um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I, I know we're recording this in 2020. This is going to be broadcast in 2021. So Happy New Year to everyone. Hope We all hope that 2021 is a better year for all of us uh, compared with 2020. And, you know, we'll, we'll see you back in parallax with our follow-up episodes. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.